People pray for others in times of crisis. Catholic priests help people pray. And the AUSCP helps priests pray. Learn more about the Association of United States Catholic Priests at auscp.org. And please, join the priest of the Association in prayer at this time. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I am joined by Zach Davis. Hello, Jesuitical world, coming at you from my roommate's abandoned bedroom to your living room. <laughs> glad, glad you're staying safe and at home. <laughs> Yep, haven't haven't left home in a long time. So still, um, I think I'm driving my roommates and my wife insane, but I'm feeling good right yeah, today. Uh, I don't have roommates, so I'm only driving myself insane. <laughs> How are you feeling about the uh, decision to move into a studio apartment? Yeah, not not so good right now. <laughs> I think it was Ested Wesley tweeted something like, "They say move into a studio. You'll never spend time there." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah feeling that but i'm actually i'm actually as soon as we're done recording here uh hopping on a bus and getting down to virginia um because yeah i think uh being alone for the next foreseeable month would not be healthy (laughs) yeah well hopefully you're able to get some time with family while you're down there Mm -hmm. Uh, but we have a great show this week who are we talking to a historic show we have our first bishop on the podcast bishop john stowe of lexington kentucky uh we were super excited to talk to him yeah we we i mean i was just finding myself wondering all of these difficult decisions that had to be made um about our current situation um what was that like what are what are bishops feeling like and you know no two bishop is alike necessarily um but bishop uh, Stowe gave us some really great insights into um, his his life, his decision making, his diocese, and where he is finding hope in all of this. Yeah, so stay tuned for that. But first, signs of the times, the part of our show where we sip through the Catholic news of the week, so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? Kathleen McChesney, a former FBI executive assistant and the first person that led the U.S. Bishop's Office of Child and Youth Protection, is receiving the 2020 Lightari Medal from the University of Notre Dame. Yeah, and this is considered by many the nation's most prestigious Catholic award. Uh, previous recipients include Dorothy Day, uh, JFK, Joe Biden, and John Boehner, and previous Jesuitical guests like Sister Norma Pimentel and Sister Helen Prejean. Yeah, so uh, joining a hallowed list of past recipients. Um, so Kathleen McChesney was hired by the U.S. Bishops in 2002 to lead the Child and Youth Protection Office and help the church apply abuse prevention policies um, right after the first wave of the sex abuse scandal broke. Right, and she stepped away from that position in 2004 and rather presciently noted that the sex abuse crisis was far from over, which, of course, um, in the summer of 2018, we we learned in a big way. Yeah, and uh, Kathleen McChesney's actually written for America several times. Um, in 2015, she called for the full release of the names of clergy abusers, which um, obviously became an important reform in the wake of 2018. Um, and most recently, she's praised ProPublica's new database that's cataloging these names and the dioceses and religious orders that still haven't released them. 
Yeah, and it's really important, I think, for the church to um, highlight the work of people like Kathleen McChesney. Um, she has really emphasized throughout the abuse crisis the need to listen to victims and survivors and to have professional, independent investigations of abuse, which, um, you know, is an ongoing need in the church. Yeah, so our church owes uh, Kathleen a great deal of gratitude. Um, and so it's exciting to see her uh, honored and celebrated. What's our next story, Ashley? Pittsburgh Catholic, the official weekly newspaper of the Diocese of Pittsburgh, last week terminated all of its employees after over 175 years of publishing. Um, so this is really hard news for that diocese. Yeah, and it's a permanent termination. It was related to the coronavirus factor, but it certainly was not the only one. Um, a majority of the paper's 83,000 copies are given the parishes and so with parishes being the lifeblood of their funding, um, once the bishop ended all public masses from coronavirus, um, they were going to be even worse financial trouble. Right. And this is a part of a much larger story in the church right now. All parishes are um, kind of in dire financial straits with, um, without having public mass. They aren't having their weekly collections, which is where a lot of money comes into the church. Um, obviously, some people give online, but not not nearly enough to cover all the operating expenses of the church. Yeah, our colleague Michael Lachlan did a story on the fallout that's already coming from this. Um, people who are right now immediately hit are parish freelancers, so think of your cantors, your musicians, and other people who get stipends from their work in a parish. Uh, also charities. For example, last weekend, parishes throughout the United States were supposed to have a special collection for Catholic Relief Services, which is the international development arm of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops which last year brought in more than $16 million in funding, and there's almost no chance that that ended up happening last last weekend with everyone gone. Right, and obviously parishes that have worked to get uh, parishioners on automatic electronic payments are going to fare better than those that um, dragged their feet in those efforts. But I think across the board, there are going to be massive financial hits to parishes. Yeah, and I'm already seeing it just sort of in my own feeds there are that parishes are if they didn't have automatic electronic payments set up they are really pushing them hard now and this there's a real human cost to this I think people became a little cynical about sort of where money was going to church and where it was getting doled out especially after um the various crises in 2018 and 2019 um but the week to week contributions um like from the collection plate that is going to affect the bottom line at the most local levels of parishes. Right. And the work that now more than ever charities are doing. So, you know, you know, your food banks and your shelters really need support right now. Uh, and if they're not getting it from the parish, uh, they're going to struggle. So I know what we hear a lot of people asking, you know, what they can do to help even if they have to stay home. And I think one is, you know, do research and see if, if you're, if your parish or diocese or Catholic charities in your area are doing work to help people who are um, struggling either with sickness or with financial troubles, um, you know, you can still you can still give to their efforts. Yeah, related to that, in terms of how people are looking to help financially, I think people are still struggling with the lack of sacramental life um, in the midst of this crisis. And we're starting to see a number of uh, different I would say creative sol solutions, or at least attempts, uh, in response to this, right, Ashley? Yeah. So, in response to restrictions on, uh, you know, social gatherings, uh, some priests have started drive-through confession, where they they sit in a parking lot and have people drive up and give their confession through the window. Um, 
I think we should say that, you know, this is kind of sending mixed messages to people. Uh, the best thing to do right now, if you're in an affected area, is to stay home. But I understand the impulse to want to bring the sacraments to people. Yeah, it's really beautiful in one sense, this hunger that people are expressing. But yeah, it I don't know. It's just... It seems like it's blurring a line that needs to be pretty clearly defined on whether or not mm-hmm. we need to stay home. And I think you're right. You know, the, the it's very difficult right now, but the most important thing you can do is just stay home. Yeah, that's why I was heartened to see something from my um, hometown diocese in Arlington. Uh, the Catholic Charities there is beginning to offer mental health sessions via teleconference. Uh, so I think it's, you know, people are cooped up at home and that can be really stressful or if they had, you know, pre-existing mental health conditions, um, you know, they, they still need uh, professional help. So I was, I was heartened to see the, the church offering that. Ashley, I was heartened to see uh, the thread you started in our Facebook, in Jesuitical's Facebook group. Um, you posted a picture of your, your little home altar for like Tari Sunday. Which has um, turned into my home recording studio. <laughs> <laughs> it's multi-purpose. Um, what, what did you, what did you uh, set yours up with? Uh, so yeah, so I had uh, multiple candles. Uh, <laughs> my, my, most, my first question was, what scent were the candles that you used on your home altar? Yeah, so we, we, had, uh, we had, what is this one? Banana nut bread pumpkin pie and vanilla cupcake. <laughs> so a little different than the than your regular uh, incense. So. I think when you blend all three together, they, <laughs> it is similar to incense. Researchers are saying this. Yeah. What what has been your setup for watching the mass remotely? Um so we had like a little sort of apartment liturgy of the word here um on Sunday where we had uh, an icon Uh, I actually brought back an olive branch from the Garden of Gethsemane from my pilgrimage. So sort of placed that there. And then a little little tiny cross from the Salt Cathedral in Colombia that my friend David had given me. So um, I sort of set the table this week, but I'm going to encourage my my wife and my roommates to sort of bring religious items that are important to them next week. But it's been really nice. I don't know. I've never, it feels like you're sort of sanctifying a space in a house. I know you're holier people than I probably already have spaces like this set up or people with larger apartments than the ones in New York already have a space like this. But it was really good to sort of mix the use of the space in my, uh, in my home like that. Yeah. Uh, listeners, we want to hear the creative ways that you're keeping the faith alive uh, under quarantine. So uh, join our Facebook group and send us a picture or tell us about your, your home chapel. Joining us from the Diocese of Lexington in Kentucky is Bishop John Stowe. Welcome to Jesuitical, Bishop Stowe. Thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know it's a difficult time for everyone. It is a challenging time for us, but all the more important that we have opportunities to talk about our faith and how to be supportive to one another. Amen. Uh, So you're actually the first bishop to come on this podcast. Uh, So one, thank you. And I guess two, uh, no pressure. Um, <laughs> but maybe just if we could get a couple of basics out of the way, I'm wondering if you could uh, describe a typical day for you. 
you know, I get that, asked that question quite a bit, and I don't know that there is a typical day. <laughs> uh, the common features of the day are certainly making time for prayer, celebrating the Mass. Almost every day has several hours of administrative responsibilities. It's not a good day if I don't have opportunities for pastoral interaction with people. Um, it's a really good day when I have an opportunity to teach or to preach uh, or to visit uh, the homebound or the sick or the homeless. Um, but there's no two days that are alike, really. Mm. So there is, there's quite, a, I mean, there's quite a bit of management and administrative work in addition to the pastoral work. It, it is, and I certainly don't have to do that alone. I have a, a very capable staff that helps me, but somebody has to set the direction and uh, provide that guidance, which I'm happy to do. Um, but I'm even happier when I'm able to really follow the example of Pope Francis and be among the people getting the smell of the sheep. So I imagine both the pastoral work and the and the management work um, got, a, got a lot more intense in the last few weeks um, with the coronavirus. Can you, can you tell us the point when you realized that this pandemic was going to be um, so serious and was going to have real impacts on, on our church? Well, certainly watching it from Italy and seeing what was happening there was already scary and it didn't seem possible that we would be spared. And then just seeing the the numbers that were taking place there and the response of the church, when I saw that in Padua in Italy, they weren't able to have mass on Ash Wednesday. I just thought, I can't imagine that happening. And then here we are in the same situation, not, not too much afterwards. No mass on Ash Wednesday is one thing, and then no mass on Easter's. I mean... Exactly. That's even more unimaginable. At what point did you realize it was going to require something that large? Well, when the governor asked churches to suspend their services, um, I was hoping that we could do a more modified approach to it and simply lift the obligation for the faithful to attend Mass and actively encourage those who are over 60 years of age or those who are whose health is compromised in any way to stay away for the common good, for the good of everyone else. Um, but even that is not enough, as we understand more and more about how this virus is spreading and how much we can put each other at risk. Yeah, I imagine that is a really difficult decision to make. Um, and I'm wondering, who who did you consult when you were um, deciding to cancel public masses? Uh, were you talking to government officials, public health officials, uh, your, your flock? Yes, as well as the other bishops in the Commonwealth of Kentucky and the Kentucky Council of Churches, so the leadership of a number of different denominations. We had a conference call actually with the governor and the state health commissioner who was talking to us about what the risks are of, of having public gatherings and really encouraging us to do everything we could to to promote social distancing and to alleviate the possibilities of spreading the disease further. And once you realized that you were going to suspend masses in the diocese, can you walk us through how that made you feel? There was a real emptiness to it. There was a real sense of a heavy weight on my shoulders because I'm depriving all of the people of God in this diocese of access to the sacraments, which I preach day in and day out, is so vital to our life as Catholics, so vital to our life as Christians. So there was a real sense of burden, but I did also have to have to say I felt a peace that it was the right thing to do. 
and that sometimes even our religious practices have to be sacrificed for the common good, which is really a way of enacting our Christian faith. How did the people in your diocese respond to the decision? Was there was there any pushback? There certainly was pushback, but you know, even before we did it, I was encouraged by many people in the healthcare professions, especially epidemiologists that are members of our church, to to do more than just lift the obligation to attend mass, to really cancel masses so that the vulnerable would not find themselves there and that we wouldn't be spreading the virus. Um, But there were those who felt it was giving in to secularism, felt that it was uh, abandoning the faith when we need it the most. And I really do understand those perspectives. I mean, tell people to cry out in prayer, to reach out for God, that he's the only one that can help us. And then we take away their principal way of doing so. So what do you say to those people when they feel that way? Well, I try to remind them of our obligation to promote the common good and that God would not ask us to put each other at risk. Um, We are blessed to live at a time with so much technology and so many ways of communicating. And even though we in the church are in the front lines of telling people that electronic communication and virtual communication is not the same as face-to-face encounters, now we're glad we have that virtual communication and opportunities to reach out in other ways. So I streamed a mass um, this past Sunday and will continue to do so every Sunday. I met with our presbyteral council yesterday and we discussed together ways to um, use this opportunity to, to help people really appreciate the mass more through its absence and by watching it and Maybe as families can gather around uh, the computer screen and, and watch Mass together and uh, talk about it in the family and use it as an occasion to grow in the faith. I, I've certainly felt and heard from other people, um, including our listeners, um, you know, like I'd taken the Mass for granted before. Um, I did. I did watch it on my computer screen last Sunday, um, and I was glad I had it, but it, it it wasn't the same. So I do think one maybe ray of light among many shadows um, is, you know, people ha- do have a new appreciation for, for going to Mass. Um, besides uh, live streaming Masses, uh, have you seen any creative responses from pastors or lay leaders to try to keep people involved with the church when they when they can't come to Mass on Sunday? Well, in addition to the Masses, there are lots of inspirational messages, little homilies or short sermons being put out on YouTube and other uh, formats for social media. I I know some of our churches have experimented with drive-through approaches to the sacraments, but even that is being discouraged because we're trying to keep people from gathering altogether and if the safest place to be is at home, then we don't even want to encourage them to come out in their cars. I hadn't thought about that because, yeah, there are not only drive-through confessions, but there also I've seen um, priests sort of driving the Blessed Sacrament through neighborhoods and um, everything. And it's such a tough, it's such a tough thing because there is this beautiful desire for sacrament for encounter, but it also, I, I don't know, as you said, it feels like it's putting people maybe at risk or at least we're sort of seeing where the line is in a way in a way where we shouldn't be right now. And I think we're all learning at this time. We're all trying to make the most creative and the best responses we can, but there's there's no directives. There's no um, outline that we can look at for how do we do this. Everybody makes comparisons to the 
so-called Spanish flu of 1918. None of us were around to see how that was handled then and what mistakes we can avoid. So I think everybody's doing their best. You mentioned not really having guidelines while you're making this decision. And I think a lot of lay people might wonder, you know, why the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops didn't have a more coordinated response. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, was there any guidance from the USCCB or was it really left up to individual bishops? The USCCB is always respectful of the autonomy of dioceses and the reality that no two dioceses in the United States are, are anything alike. We've got huge urban centers and we have rural dioceses. We have places like my diocese where the population is only 3% Catholic and we have places where the population is more than 90% Catholic. So it's very hard for the conference to, to make rules. And then we see that the state governments are responding differently and calling for different responses from their people. So it, it's very hard. They, the, the conference has provided guidelines in a broad sense and has tried to make tools available to us for our own discernment of what to do best. We know that Rome is and Italy is a couple of weeks ahead of us in responding to this, and so we're seeing what happens there. You mentioned that your diocese is only 3% Catholic. What's it, what's it been like working with other faiths and trying to respond to this? At least for the Council of Churches, which includes the mainline churches in Kentucky, there's a great spirit of cooperation but even there, it was very hard to come to consensus because we have some churches that are very small and are struggling and, and don't know what shutting the doors for a couple of weeks or a couple of months would do to them, and others are, are much larger. So there, there's a great spirit of cooperation. The communication among us is very good. Support for each other is strong, but uniformity doesn't work even in that circumstance. You mentioned, I mean, small churches. There are also, I mean, Catholic churches that have been struggling financially um, before this. I'm wondering if there is sort of a cliff coming at the end of this, or if there if there are sort of challenges that we can't even foresee yet that uh, you and your diocese are paying attention to. Well, I don't want to think about a cliff, but that we're not going to come out of this unscathed. And I think the first uh, area of suffering is going to be in our Catholic schools. In our small diocese, most of our schools are something like a hand-to-mouth operation. They don't have a lot of reserves to rely on, and they're all tuition-driven. So when the, those tuition dollars aren't coming in, or when we're expecting families who are facing layoffs or have not been able to go to work to still come up with money with, for tuition, it's going to be very difficult. And of course, giving in the churches is going to be affected by the lack of attendance at Mass. I think a lot of Christians are, you know, one, struggling with uh, not having access to the sacraments, but also with the fact that, you know, we're called to serve the poor and the sick, uh, and and right now we're not really able to do that in the ways that we're, we're used to. Uh, so what, what would you say to, to people who are worried about that? Well, we do what we can, and one of the ways that we can be supportive, those who are, have a, a means to, to be generous and to offer monetary contributions, because the poor are always hit harder by any kind of adverse circumstances, and this will be no different. I had a meeting with our staff here at our Catholic Center, the headquarters for the diocese, about how the church can't be missing in action at this time and that Catholic Charities is going to have to be our priority. And even though we have lots of limitations and have to be careful about social distancing, 
Um, we find that we have college students that are home because their semesters have ended or they're doing home study at this point and have some time to, to donate to sorting goods and delivering things. We have people making deliveries and just leaving them on people's porches so that they don't pass any infection on. We're trying to be as creative as possible to do the outreach support that we can. We have a Catholic Action Center here in Lexington. It's a, an entirely lay-run ministry, but they really give the Catholic Church a good name in the community because of the uh, care for the homeless. And because they were so crowded in that place, uh, a good number of the people who were staying at the homeless shelter had to be moved to what was a retreat house at the diocese and is in the process of being converted into a drug rehabilitation center. But we were fortunate that that space was available and, and we were able to uh, provide additional housing for people. So we're just stretching our resources and trying to be as creative as possible. One group I've been thinking about a lot are, are catechumens who are supposed to come into the church on Easter. Do you, do you have any of those in your diocese and, and how are they handling it? What are you offering? We have a few hundred of them, and I'm so glad that we had such a beautiful rite of election on the first Sunday of Lent. I had no idea that we would not be able to celebrate the sacraments of initiation at the Easter Vigil, which they have been longing for and looking forward to. I didn't realize that that would be our principal celebration this Lent, um, but I'm so glad that we celebrated as well as we did. Um, in each parish, we're telling people that the initiation has to be postponed unless there's a real urgency. If you know, if there's a, a reason, a compelling reason why it should be done privately, and so far there's great disappointment, but people understand that we're all in this together, and and. Nothing is normal right now. Can I ask, maybe this is delicate, but is the, what is the, I guess, most compelling reason to not sort of move forward with like a private baptism, for example? Well, because part of what baptism is, is incorporation in the body of Christ. And especially for those who've participated in the RCIA, it's been a group process all along. And so to privatize that, unless there was an, a compelling reason to do so, would really take away from the celebration and the whole ecclesiology that's promoted in, in the RCIA. Bishop, I'm wondering, how, how are your priests doing with all of this? How do they feel about the adjustment, the this new demand on them, the sort of call to pull back from a lot of what they normally do? Yes, I had a, a meeting with the Council of Priests yesterday, and it was a it was a beautiful meeting. It was a fruitful meeting. First of all, we recall that it was the 40th anniversary of Oscar Romero's assassination and prayed for his intercession. He was a, a shepherd who knew what it was to put lay down his life for the sheep. And we asked for his strength and his courage for ourselves. Um, we talked about uh, how to enhance the, the celebrations of the liturgy through social media and the ways that we're offering it. We had a good discussion about whether to postpone the Chrism Mass, the annual Mass, when we consecrate and bless the oils, and when the priests renew their vows. And despite some with a strong preference to postpone it so that we could actually physically celebrate it together, the decision was ultimately made that, no, we can all participate in it online, and the prayers for the blessing of the oil of the sick may be a powerful uh, words and a powerful gesture at this time when healing is so needed. 
but each priest was able to share their own difficulties and frustrations as well as their creativity and how one priest said, you know, I'm always trying to figure out how do we get beyond the boundaries of the parish and how do I get outside the office? So I'm going through the parish directory and calling people that I've never had an opportunity to call before, but now I'm just getting on the phone and they're thrilled to get a phone call from their pastor. I think one thing I've noticed um, as, as a young person in the church, uh, it can sometimes be frustrating that, that the church hasn't already done some of these things to, to get online and reach people where they are um, through social media um, or like be able to donate online. So I'm wondering if there are things you're learning now and your priests are learning now that, that you know, are helpful and should carry on even when uh, this crisis is over. Absolutely. And I have to confess, I've always been happy to let other people do that. And I find myself pretty helpless <laughs> when it comes even to working the microphone on this computer. I don't know what I'm doing, um, <laughs> but we're certainly getting a, an up-close lesson in how important it is. And uh, I've been impressed with our priest's creativity and uh, the willingness to, to try things. Um, just switching gears a little bit. So, the news conference when you were introduced to your diocese, um, you, you mentioned that you were a, a Jesuit pope by the name of Francis, sent a Franciscan bishop trained by Jesuits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I thought was funny. Um, what did you learn from the Jesuits? And uh, how do you incorporate that into your uh, ministry as bishop? Well, I think first and foremost, the faith that does justice was a theme throughout my formation, and it's been integral to my understanding of the gospel and to my understanding of ministry. Um, concern for the outcast, concern for uh, those in need, and it, it's completely compatible with my Franciscan spirituality, so there was never, never a conflict there. I'm glad for the Jesuit education that I had and the spirituality that came with it. You didn't have to say that just because this is the podcast called <laughs> Jesuitical, but we appreciate it nonetheless. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to say it because it's it's sincere. Uh, one one question for you that we ask all of our guests um, is: if you could canonize anyone, uh, Catholic or not, living or dead, who would it be, and why? Well, for a long time, I would have said Oscar Romero, but now that one is taken. <laughs> so so that's pretty good. Yeah, pick someone who you know, needs your help. <laughs> Well, Dorothy Day would probably be next on the list. I think her um, her rejection of materialism, her vow of hospitality, and the Catholic worker movement that she started is a witness that we definitely need at this time. I'd also, if I can get a second one, I am, among other things, the, the president of Pax Christi USA, and we have been promoting the canonization of Ben Salmon who was a man originally from Denver who died in Chicago, but he was a conscientious objector during World War I. He was even um, dismissed from the Knights of Columbus because of his stand when it was considered not patriotic, not to want to fight for your nation. Hmm. He had a, a compelling reason how the faith that he was raised in said that he couldn't raise, raise a weapon against another person intentionally. So wow. those would be my top two. Okay. Um, and maybe just like one last question. You are the Bishop of the Diocese of Lexington, but I'm wondering if you could maybe, a lot of people, a lot of listeners to this podcast are feeling you know, scared, confused, um, anxious. Um, wondering if you could offer a word of hope maybe beyond your diocese to uh, the listeners of this podcast, and particularly the, the young people listening. 
Sure. Uh, the uncertainty brings with it so much anxiety, and most of us are not familiar with ex facing vulnerability and not knowing what's going to happen. But it's in those times that we have to turn to our faith and we have to um, really believe what St. Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? And God, who didn't spare his own son, will not hold back anything that we need for our flourishing, for for our eternity. So today we celebrate the Feast of the Annunciation. It's, it's God's answer to the suffering in the world. He's not separate from it. He became part of it in the person of Jesus. So this is, this is the bedrock of our faith. This is the, the source of our hope. And this is when we need it the most. So we need to spread that good news and encourage others with the kind of selfless love that Jesus demonstrates for us perfectly. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, if I could steal a line from Pope Francis, I, I hope you'll pray for us and for our listeners, uh, and, and we'll do the same. I gladly will, and thank you for the opportunity. I love what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bishop. You're welcome. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. First, we want to thank some new patrons. Uh, Elizabeth Bates, Liz McGallans, and Thomas Hirschlein have started supporting the show through Patreon. So thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you so much. Again, I especially as times get tougher, um, the, the support means so much, and it's going to help us keep the show going for uh, years to come. Um, just also wanted to point listeners towards uh, some resources available on America's website. Um, just this week, we published a list of every uh, Jesuit parish that's uh, live streaming their masses. Um, so you can find that and more um, at americamagazine.org slash coronavirus. Again, we can't do this without you. And we are committed to you, to walking with you in this uncertain time that can feel fearful or anxious. Um, we'll be walking right next to you. So thank you. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach? I'm not totally sure where it is yet. Um, I found myself, depending on the day or moment even, like I, I, I feel a little bit overwhelmed if when I read some of the stories that are coming out about people suffering um, and it's only going to get harder and my heart is on the edge between pity and compassion and sort of expansive. And if it tilts in the other direction, it's just sort of like utter despair and like fear and confusion. And honestly, at this point, it feels just so day to day and moment by moment that when I give into, it's just sort of very clear what the evil spirit is and what the good spirit is. Um, and I'm not sure how to steer my heart in a direction other than just sort of name it in prayer and sort of acknowledge it, but I, I which I guess makes it a consolation right now, but it sort of feels like, I don't know, the desolation is uh, at bay, if that makes any sense. 
Yeah, no, it, it sounds a lot like what I am going to say, uh, which, I, you know, I'll call a consolation. Um, but as you mentioned, I, I you know, had my little uh, home, home mass viewing. Um, and I very, you know, I could have watched the mass at any time. Uh, our, our parish, St. Boniface, had the, had the mass up on its YouTube channel pretty early in the day. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do this at six, my normal <laughs> mass time, just to like give myself a sense of structure and a sense of time and normalcy. So I did that. Um, and I was watching, watching the mass. Um, and yeah, we got to the Our Father, you know, which is kind of part of the mass where you are most aware of the people around you and you're about to do the sign of peace. Uh, and I just kind of, I like kind of broke down. I just started <laughs> crying. Um, and, and I had something similar to what you were feeling where it's like, I was crying because I was so lonely and afraid, but on the other hand, like so, so grateful to have the mass, even in this different way. Um, and in that moment, like I really, I don't know. I'm not one to like pray to Jesus, but I really was just kind of like Jesus. Like I'm, I'm giving this up because I, if, if I have to rely on myself right now, like I'm not gonna get through this. And I know I don't have like the worst of circumstances, but it really was like a moment of surrender to me, um, of being like, all right, I'm not in control, and I'm gonna have to accept that, or the next few weeks are gonna be really hard. And you're not alone. You are alone. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe just before you, we go and before you read the credits, just wanted to uh, let listeners know that um, part of what we're trying to do in this, in this time is accompany you more, as we said. And so we're going to be throwing in some, some new things into the Jesuitical podcast feed. We're going to be upping the frequency uh, in which Jesuitical appears. Uh, so look for us uh earlier next week than you would normally see us in addition to the normal Friday episodes are going to be dropping. So be excited for that. <laughs> yeah. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. <laughs>